the time tapes. Since returning from Topsham some two weeks previous, I had been at somewhat of a loss. Recovering from my experiences, my mind was both exhausted and filled with incessant repeating thoughts at the same time. Rather than answering my questions or putting my thoughts of John to rest, it had rather opened up so many thoughts and possibilities that my mind in truth was a mess. Add to that my realisation that John, rather than being dead, may well be somewhere else, somewhere beyond our understanding, alive yet not alive, weighed even heavier on my mind. I had not returned to my occupation as I had taken at least a year's sabbatical, and I now, rather than having little to no leads, had more possibilities than was probable or indeed I was able to process. Topsham had opened up so many possibilities that I was sport for choice, while also being confused as to where to start. Firstly, there were these beings, beings of no recognisable form or origin, that seemed, if the beliefs of the locals were right, to be both here and somewhere else at once, where the somewhere else was I'd ready to think. They, it would seem, were unable, due to an interrupted ritual, to fully inhabit this space. What they were, or where they came from, was a total mystery, as to what was their intent. Then there was the fact that witches, or cunning folk, were real, that covens existed. Now witches, and the such like, having lived long in folklore, but to find out that they were real and beyond those playing at being witches was mind-opening, to say the least. They, the coven, had performed some kind of ritual that had brought something partially through. There were the sigils, wards that provided, it would seem, protection, and now I knew of them they were everywhere I looked, on the facades of buildings, in books of the more esoteric nature, in graveyards, on churches, the list was endless. Between the cunning folk's circles and the sigils of protection, this also meant that magic was real. Magic is the only term that I can use, and I would presume that throughout history anything that could not be explained has been termed magic. Once how something works becomes known through meticulous investigation and scientific proof, then it is deemed to be science. However, until then, it is magic. I am sure that if we were to show people from a mere hundred years ago some of the inventions of the present age, they would call it magic. Indeed, it may well be that what I now call magic in another hundred or so years would be understood and then accepted as science, and we well may be ridiculed as being uneducated and backward for seeing it as magic. I now understand that people before me have made a stand, acting as watchers of such events, and that I, as a supposedly educated man, was unaware. Ordinary and possibly common folk as I would have perceived them, yet more worldly wise, knowledgeable, and far, far braver than I. This is much to my shame.
The brave folk of Topsham have stood for decades, watching, protecting their population from forces that could snatch people out of thin air, and apparently change the passage of time, or at the very least the perception of it. Finally, there was the book. I had no description beyond it was a book that was brought and introduced by a stranger into a coven of witches, and in being used caused consternation to many of the coven members, opening a gateway to somewhere or something that I cannot understand at this time in my investigation. I have no idea what the book looked like, or where it and its owner went after that fateful night. I am sure that it holds answers, though, and that although the locals believe it would be better if it had been lost to history, I believe that it would be better found and studied. Maybe John could be brought back. It was the search for the book, or at least the beginning of the search, that brought me into the most danger I believe I have been in so far. The book seemed as improbable as it may sound my best lead. The creatures had been watched for for many decades, and nothing had been learned of them by folks seemingly far wiser than me in these matters. The book, however, had been lost to time and disregarded. Now it has to be said that although I had proposed that it was my best possible lead, it was also a lead that had no trail to take me to it. I had no idea what it looked like, or who the woman was that had possessed and wielded it. I also had no idea from when she came, or to where she had gone when she disappeared. So in effect, my best lead was one of no leads. I did, however, have a couple of ideas, threads that I could follow. Firstly, I now knew of cunning folk and covens. Secondly, I knew of the sigils that marked some of the craft of these folk. And lastly, I, after some research, had found one or two so-called esoteric bookshops within the greater London area. My hope was that either one of these bookshops may have heard of such a book, for I presume there to be more than the one book, and also with the nature of the books they sold, they may have contacts to practitioners of the craft. My second hope was in effect the opposite, that by following the sigils and wards round London, I may find one of the folk I sought, and in doing so, that I may be introduced to a coven, that may then be able to provide me with the history of the book or the person who wielded it. The only decision was of which route of investigation should I put my efforts. It was on this morning, early in March, that I decided that I would follow the path of the esoteric bookshops. I knew where they were. With the preoccupation of the age for seance and Ouija boards, these dealers in the arcane arts actually advertised in the pages of the London newspapers. I had always thought of them as peddling so much bunkum to susceptible folk, and although I was sure that most of it was pure bunkum, I was also now sure that indeed some of it was not. And so it was that after two weeks of indecision, that in a handful of moments I had formed my plan of action. How far, or as to where it would take me, I could not have possibly imagined, as I sat there tracing the lines of the recently etched aprotropaic marks on the case of my pocket watch. 
as fate would have it, a letter arrived on this morning of my having finally formed a plan of action. It was from Edward Brown, with whom I had studied at Oxford. He was now a coroner such as myself, having taken up practice in Ipswich, in Essex, his home county. Many of us that had studied together kept in occasional communication. I was the worst of this, having never been much of one for letter-writing, and so many of the letters that sat in the bottom drawer of my desk were opened and read, but to my detriment not replied to. He had apparently written to more of our old classmates, in the hope at least one of us could provide some thought or shed some light, asking if we could provide any opinion on something that he himself could not explain. The letter went on to explain. He had been called to investigate a corpse found very near to the rectory at Borley. Now, with my current preoccupation with the inexplicable, and even before continuing with the rest of the contents of the letter, my interest was piqued. Borley, by now, was quite famous, and not for any good reason. The rectory at Borley had gained a somewhat marred history since its erection in 1862, a history of hauntings and inexplicable happenings, a very short time to have built such a reputation. There were also, I am sure of great distress to the church, stories of a monastery having existed in the area, and of, well, I shall not detail here, but the hanging of a monk and the bricking up of a nun in the walls of the monastery. It had been quite the sensation in the papers, and was quite extraordinary for such a modern and recent building as the rectory, the previous rectory having burned down some years earlier. Edward's communication continued on to say that he'd been called out to examine and recover a body that had been found in the grounds of the rectory, a body in itself being found in the grounds of this place being enough to cause a local stir, and word passed quickly through the local community. He had attended as quickly as he may, having to travel some twenty miles or so, and he found a man who to all intents and purposes would have seemed to have been sleeping. Such was the almost perfect preservation of the body, or at least the very recently deceased. Neither the rector nor the locals recognised the fellow. The locals, of which when he arrived there were a good few milling around, the local constable being pressed to preserve the scene and the deceased dignity in not being gawped at, were all hinting at the less-than-reputable history of the rectory. Conspiracy was rife in their minds. It was a far more public affair than Edward would have liked, and at times he was jostled as the onlookers pressed in. Finding absolutely nothing of note in the vicinity, which was strange in and of itself, and with the man seemingly not to be local or a visitor to the area, no one had seen him before, he had the body moved back to Ipswich, where he could properly examine it. It was there that he discovered the two things that gave rise to thought. The man himself was not extraordinary, being a male of some thirty years old, in apparent good health, of a manual trade by his hands and clothes. However, this man had drowned, and in salt water, not fresh, so ruling out any nearby rivers. The coastline here was some thirty miles away, the nearest port towns being Claxton or Felixstowe. 
Other than this, which was enough, there was nothing further to note from the examination of the body, no injuries to be found either to point at accident or foul play. The second thing that stood out as strange and out of place was to be found in the man's jacket pocket, a pawn slip. Now, it is quite commonplace for the services of pawnbrokers to be sought out. Indeed, they oft proved to be as numerous as public houses. However, this pawn slip was dated 1855 and from a broker in Exmouth. The slip bore none of the signs of ageing that one would expect in a piece of paper some forty years old. It also bore no signs of having been in contact with water. And that was the other thing. The man's clothes were completely dry. Yet if pressed to give a time of death, Henry would have estimated within the last twenty-four hours. The weather was cold and damp, it being early March, and had been a light rain all throughout the previous night. So anyone who had cause to find themselves in a river or the sea, as improbable as that was, or indeed if they had just been out in the elements the previous night, would not have been bone dry. As may be imagined, my blood ran cold at the mention of the date and of Exmouth. I stood from my desk and paced the study, my heart fair jumping out of my chest, in both excitement and the cold remembered horror of my own experiences on the path from Topsham to Exmouth. I knew at once that I must go to Ipswich, to see the sight of discovery of the body, and the body itself, even if that meant exhuming it from a recent grave. My sleep was fitful that night, and when I finally drifted off, I found myself walking in cold mists, unresolved forms around me. When they came closer, I saw the horror-struck and pleading face of John the farmer from Devon. His dog circled him, its hackles up and its teeth bared, incessantly growling and barking. A woman also there came to haunt my dreams, a young woman, although I could discern no solid feature to recognise her by. She held a closed book that the mist seemed to emanate from, to form and billow around us. Walking just out of reach, she looked back to beckon me forward, taunting my inability to gain any ground on her. Shapes, shapes holding no form for longer than a moment emanated from that book, always at the edge of vision, never fully forming into anything recognisable or that could be remembered and described. I woke in a cold sweat as the last breath was leaving my body, my eyes now unfocused staring from the depths of the dark cold waters to the dwindling light of the sky far above me. It was some few hours later that I found myself stepping onto the platform at Ipswich Railway Station, and at the beginning of my second case, my night's terrors still fresh in my mind. The Time Tape Chronicles, the case book of Dr. Miller, is written, narrated and produced by Charles Walker, copyright 2023. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and would love to hear from you. To get in touch, please email thetimetapeschronicles at gmail.com. Thank you for listening 
and I hope to see you here again soon. Mm-hmm.